Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Jill Gravink, the founder and executive director of Northeast Passage. Jill founded Northeast Passage in 1990 as a means of bringing recreational therapy out of the inpatient setting and into the community. Northeast Passage works with people who have physical and mental disabilities using sport and leisure activities to improve the quality of the client's life and to, as they say at Northeast Passage, live beyond disability. Northeast Passage works with everyone from children to combat veterans, treating more than 3,000 clients last year. In this podcast, Jill tells the story of how Northeast Passage came to be and what it took to grow the organization from just her operating out of the trunk of her car to where it is today. We also discuss how organizations like Northeast Passage are well poised to contribute to the future of healthcare as the industry shifts to outcomes and value-based reimbursement, and conclude with a discussion about leadership. So welcome to The Forge, Jill. Thank you. Uh, So you attended the University of New Hampshire, and you earned your degree in leisure management and tourism with a therapeutic recreation option, and you also got a minor in physical education. How come you came to UNH, and, and how did you choose therapeutic recreation? Well, it's I actually ended up at UNH a little bit by accident. I was a ski racer and I had planned to go to the University of Vermont for physical therapy. And I went up and met with their ski team coach and we didn't get along. So (laughs) (laughs) I came back to ski for the University of New Hampshire. And what kind of skiing? Alpine, yeah, alpine skiing. So slalom, giant slalom at the time. And so UNH was, became my first choice because of skiing versus curriculum. So I entered as physical education major at the time okay. that was a pre-physical therapy. Okay. Then while I was here, I found out about recreation therapy, which is a relatively new profession at the time. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's actually really what I meant all yeah. along, was to be able to help people with disabilities get out and be active and engaged again. And so that's sort of how I found how I found the field. Okay. So we had talked earlier about, I was not familiar with the field of recreational therapy. So could you give us kind of an an idea of what that is and kind of where it came from? Sure. So recreational therapy, I'll give you a really, I'll give you the hard definition. I'll read that one for you. And then I'll give you sort of another version that is what I use. So recreation therapy means the treatment service designed to restore, remediate, and rehabilitate a person's level of functioning and independence in life activities promote health and wellness, as well as reduce or eliminate the activity limitations and restrictions to participation in life situations caused by illness or disabling conditions. So that's the the book version of what it is. Essentially, what I always say is that a rec therapist is a person who uses recreation, sport, leisure activities that are relevant to a person's life as a way and a context for functional improvement. Okay. So if, you know, if I am a person with a spinal cord injury and I need to learn how to do transfers to be able to move from one place to another, okay. if the motivation is that I also want to be a sled hockey player, 
learning that transfer from your wheelchair down to a, a sled on, a, on the ice is, is incredibly challenging, but once you master that, yeah. you know, any other challenges, any other transfer is going to be a, a piece of cake for you. So we'll use that content, that the context of recreation and sort of the intrinsic motivation of an individual in a purposeful way to accomplish functional outcomes. Okay. So I learned how to transfer myself from my wheelchair to a sled. That also applies to transferring myself to a chair, to some right. other... A chair in a restaurant or, or a bus. When people come out of rehabilitation, they often know how to transfer from one level surface to another level surface. Okay. But in life, right. you know, that, that doesn't always happen. Okay. And so what if I'm in a parking space in a dirt parking lot? And so it's not, you know, I pull my chair out and it's not a level transfer. Or, you know, the wheels aren't solid on the ground. If this is the first time that I've had to do a transfer like that, that's going to be very intimidating. And if we can teach that transfer in a variety of recreational settings, any transfer that you're going to accomplish, in, in, that you're going to see in your work or anything that life is going to throw at you, you, you will have a, you'll have a better perspective on how to do that and you'll have skills to be able to do that. Right, so. and then the, the intrinsic motivation you're talking about. Absolutely, I think that that is one of that's sort of the art of therapeutic recreation is really getting to know your client and being able to find out what it is that makes them tick, and then being able to use what it is that definition of themselves or how they want to see themselves in the world as a tool to help their own well-being and. And we're the facilitators of making that happen. So, you know, we always, at Northeast Passage, we talk about the concept of define, pursue, achieve. And so the first step is really an assessment with an individual where we're looking at them and we're saying, give me the definition of you. Don't put any activity on it, but what is critical to the essence of you? You know, social, outdoors, family, you know, those are the, the sort of the hints that then we're able to take and apply as intrinsic motivation to get this person to move towards a healthier life or learning hard skills. And that's the pursue part is where we sort of bring together the essence of who this person is, their interests and their goals. Our job is to put those two things together okay. and, and help it to be successful. And then the achieve is the accomplishment of the goal. Right. So. Okay. So when did, when did recreational therapy become its own field? You know, it, it goes back, I think that the inklings were back with, honestly, Florence Nightingale in nursing and Jane Hall in social work. And they were the first people to start to really look at, wow, good things happen when people are recreating and are pursuing sport or, or a recreation activity. How can we unlock those inherent benefits of of recreation and sport and apply them to our clients. So Florence Nightingale was, you know, there was a, a lot of people, veterans were dying when they were coming off the battlefield and she found that if she was able to get them engaged in some meaningful activities that their life expectancy was better, the, their survival rate was better. And Jane Hall was working with, you know, created Hall House which was working with people who were in poverty and she was finding the same things. You know, we progressed through each war. After each war and working with veterans, there was more organization. But it really wasn't until the 70s or 80s that it started to take its, 60s and 70s that it really started to take, take form as a true profession. Our first national credentialing body was not until 1981. So it was a very new profession when, 
when I came into it in its in its current form, it was a new profession, even though its roots are, are yeah. very old. Okay. So. All right. So you received your certification as a therapeutic recreation specialist in 1986, shortly after you graduated from right. UNH. What was involved with getting your certification at that time? So to be certified, uh, you have to graduate from an accredited program. A four-year bachelor's program is the entry-level degree. You have to complete a 14-week internship under the supervision of a, a certified therapist. And then you have to pass a national credentialing examination. So. Uh, it's, it's similar to occupational therapy, physical therapy, in terms of the track and the path that you have to take to become a, a certified therapist. So that's, that's okay. that process. All right. So your first job was working as an inpatient therapist in physical rehabilitation. Right. What does uh, inpatient physical rehabilitation therapist do, uh, and, and where were you working? So I was working at Northeast Rehabilitation Hospital in okay. Salem, New Hampshire, as an inpatient therapist. And so what an inpatient therapist does is in, in rehab, it's, it's an interesting thing. One of the reasons I started Northeast Passage is because I didn't feel like I had enough opportunity to work with my clients as an inpatient therapist. But as an inpatient therapist, what you're doing is you're really honing in on functional skills. They're getting building blocks in physical therapy. They're getting building blocks in OT and speech, depending on what their disability is. And what we try to do is put some of those building block skills together for, for your client while you're in there. And again, trying to use something that's relevant for them. So for example, I'll, I'll stay with spinal cord injury right now. If you have someone that has a C5 level spinal cord injury, so they're gonna have biceps, they're not gonna have hand function, but if you flex and extend your wrist, your hand will open and close. So teaching someone with that level of injury how to use their wrist to open and close their hand to pick things up is something that they would be working on in occupational therapy. What I would do is if I had a client that was interested in, in playing chess, I would take and put like pipe cleaners on chess pieces and we would play a game of chess that would get engaged in a whole other realm of conversation but at the same time my client, my patient would be working on picking up those chess pieces by instead of using the grip of his fingers being able to use the flexion and extension of his wrist. Okay. And then I would leave that board with him, you know, often I would get patients that say, you know, this is a catastrophic injury, my family comes in, we sit, we stare at each other, we don't know what to say because oh my gosh, what is the rest of our life going to look like? So I'd leave the chessboard there and, you know, now they're playing chess at night and it's giving them some sense of normalcy and some sense of of how their life used to be. Okay. So. Okay, great. You eventually became a senior staff therapist and director of aquatics at Northeast Rehabilitation Hospital. What, how did you use aquatics for therapy? So where, where I was working with aquatics, we, I was working primarily on the chronic pain unit at that point. And so using aquatics for buoyancy to allow exercise to happen in, in an environment that was less painful for a lot of our, our clients. So. So it was an exercise program, but I would also do water safety and adapted aquatics. So teaching people how to swim again after an injury, as well as water safety. If I'm out on a boat and I've had a brain injury and the first time I end up in the water is by accident, can I flip myself over and get face up in the water? So it's, it was teaching those basic survival in the water after disability, teaching swimming strokes and then pain management. So while you were at, uh, working at Northeast Rehabilitation Hospital, you actually started Northeast Passage. And this was, so this was back in 1990. Mm -hmm. What was it that inspired you to found the organization? What was your original vision for Northeast Passage? I think that what 
Well, at first, when I came back, I did my internship in inpatient rehab as well. And when I came back to finish up my schooling, my senior thesis I did on basically creating a program that would ultimately be Northeast Passage. It was called Beyond Rehab. Okay. Because what I was seeing in rehab, both on my internship and when I when I got my first job, was that, you know, it's it's Maslow. You know, it's it's hierarchy of needs. If I have just had a catastrophic injury, my first need is to figure out how am I going to eat? How am I going to go to the bathroom, get out of bed? You know, clothing, shelter, food, you know, all of those those things. And so recreation, I found in those places, even though we were working on functional skills, almost felt like a distraction at times to, to patients. And it wasn't until they were out that they were like, oh my gosh, now what do I do? You know, and and also not being comfortable with the the skills that they had learned in a structured environment when it was when they were in a community setting. So they come from a place where everybody understands disability, everybody can answer any question, the building is fully accessible, and then we push them out into the world and, and it's like I had clients coming back and saying, it felt like you dropped me off a cliff and asked me to fly. Okay. And so the the vision for Northeast Passage was really be to be that transition for those clients when they came out, like here's someone that understands, here's someone that can translate this world for you and take those building block skills and help you put them into action out in this community setting. Okay, Did the, do, were there other organizations that were providing that service at, the, at that time? So there were, there, are, uh, there were other adaptive sports organizations. Okay. And you know, adaptive sports is sort of the, the final stage of therapeutic recreation in some of the models. It's, uh, it's recreation participation. And what I wanted to develop with Northeast Passage was, was to have those adapted sports programs that people could come and participate in, but I also wanted to be able to take a therapeutic view of it and get more engaged with our clients and, and seeing, you know, what's preventing you from getting to that sport, you know? So a lot of people would disappear. You know, they'd come out of rehab and they'd just disappear. They may have been a very active person before their injury, but they would just disappear into the community. And you, you wouldn't see them again unless something bad happened and they came back to the hospital. And so what was happening in there? You know, what was happening that this person wasn't, who were the ones that weren't able to fly after we pushed them off the, pushed them out of the nest, the okay. rehab nest. Okay. And so I wanted to develop something that would be a catch for those guys, as well as just a really good experience for the, for the guys that were thriving and succeeding. Okay. So. So how did you, what was, who were your first clients? Or how did you kind of start doing this? Did you start so, doing it before you actually created the organization? Or did so, you, well, did we, I created the organization because I needed to have a structure for that to happen. And you can't rent a facility, you can't do anything unless you have liability insurance, which, okay. you know, to get liability insurance, I needed to be an organization. And so I started the organization while I was working at Northeast Rehab. And my first clients were those that were being discharged. And my first volunteers were other therapists that had an invested interest in these, these clients' success. And so I started decreasing my hours at Northeast Rehab as the, my, as the demands of Northeast Passage started to increase. Okay. And um, then, so at that point, you know, it came that, that sort of time when I had to make a decision of whether this was going to, you know, this was going to fly or if it was going to just sort of fade off or 
trickle on along. And so that's when I took the leap and uh, I had six months of funding and took the leap with, if I give this 100% effort, is it, are we going to be able to make it turn into a full-time thing that I can actually buy groceries? You know? <laughs> which is important. And, yeah, which is important, yeah. you know. Yeah. So that's actually when UNH came into the picture because I had graduated from the University of New Hampshire and I was at an expo with Lou Powell, who was my professor at the time. And we started talking about, you know, I was like, this is so cool what's happening, but at the same time, you know, I'm just struggling with being able to keep it going. And, you know, I need more time, all of those things. And she was like, we have an empty office um, that if you'd like to to set up an office space there, you know, we'll, we'll kind of hide you there a little bit and you can, mm-hmm. you'll have a phone and you'll have a computer and, you know, and you'll have some of our expertise to, to sort of pick off of. And then, and Janet Sable, another professor who I actually is a mentor of mine, said, come on, make the jump and we'll write our first federal, we'll write a federal grant to try to make this happen. So we didn't have the grant, but we knew that we needed the time to be able to, uh, to, to write the grant and, and make this thing come to. So you said you had six months of funding. Yes. Was that like bankrolled out of your pocket or was no, it, had, uh, did you have a donor? Or? Yeah, I had a couple of little donors, a couple of small sponsors, an orthotic, orthotics and prosthetic clinic, and I had a grant from the Seacoast Foundation for Health okay. and Danny's team. So I had those three grants cobbled together. At that time, it was like $36,000, I think. Okay that I knew I had that would program and give me some money to live on. Okay. And so this was, this was sort of my fly or die moment, yeah. you know. And, uh, and we came together and we wrote the grant and we got it. Okay. And, and that was our first federal grant. So was, was that the that was partners? Par- that was partners. Okay, so, so you came to UNH, was this, was this in 1993 then? This was 1993. Okay. And you became a clinical professor at some point. Right. I became a clinical what professor. Is that? Uh, so a clinical fe- professor is one that deals with. Um, at at the time, it was it was the position that I was able to go into as a grant funded position. So I was partly UNH grant funded through as a clinical professor, and partly funded directly out of Northeast Passage, a separate private nonprofit organization. And so as a clinical professor, I was managing that grant. Okay. And I was teaching a class on the side to supplement some income and teaching some labs to supplement income. And that's what my role with, as a clinical professor was. Manage the federal grant and teach a, a couple of, of classes. Okay. So what was the partner's grant all so, about? So partner's was Northeast Passage. It was the vision that I had for Northeast Passage. And at the time, the Department of Education, the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitation Services was offering grants to get basically community resources started for people with disabilities. And you know, I have to say that we were probably the perfect example of that. That was the seed money that really got us going. I had, it allowed me to go full time. It allowed me to hire one other staff. It allowed for us to do proof of concept. You know, we had been sort of, 
just scrambling along on, I'd get $200 in the bank, uh, down to $200 in the checking account and run a raffle, you know, be like, oh, you know, we've got a paddling clinic coming up. I need, you know, $500 to pay my instructor. We'd run a raffle, you know. Wow. So we'd been kind of scrambling along like so that. Big sales and raffles kind big of. Big sales oh and God. raffles, you know, <laughs> grassroots kind of. Wow. How do we just keep that going? All volunteer, out of the trunk of the car, you know. Equipment so that we had was in my. You had. I had therapy volunteers, therapist yeah, volunteers I, that you knew. Every one of my friends suddenly became very much involved in my friends and family, um, you know, and and other therapists at the rehab that you know I would drag them out on weekends to be to be doing this, and it wasn't even dragging out because it was it was an opportunity to see what happened to people once they got out of rehab. And I think that a lot of therapists that are inpatient wonder, what is that next step for my patient? And, and, to, and for those therapists to be able to, you know, take someone that they were really worried out and be canoeing down a river with them and be like, all right, they're okay. Or, you know, I think that was, that was a really fulfilling for them. So it wasn't dragging them out. They were all like, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm in, you know. Sure. Friends and family sometimes, you know, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Guess what? <laughs> you know, that was, uh, that was. Did you know you were going canoeing? <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you know? <laughs> I got a plan for you, you know. Great. And uh, so, but we, we were sort of kind of rumbling along like that, uh -huh. you know, very patchwork. And then when we got the grant, you know, I had these concepts. I, I wanted to be creating opportunities for people that wanted to come and get skills and then be able to take them back and, and play with their friends and family and not have to always be tied to a program. Okay. I wanted to create the social experience for people that felt that they were isolated and did want a place to come when they did want to play. Really asking clients, what is it that's preventing you from being successful in the community? And it was often it was, well, when I show up at a typical recreation facility, they don't know what to do with me. And so how could we go and have an impact on that environment? So we ran all of our programs out in community settings and worked with the community setting to improve their own accessibility so it was a sustainable environment. We, Can you give an example of an organization that so, maybe partnered with you? Um, kind of? So we, we worked with the National Forest on like what are good things to do with accessible campgrounds. We worked with health clubs about, you know, this was just after ADA. So okay. this was, you know, this was... And ADA is? Americans with Disabilities Act. Okay. So this was when people, there was still some pushback about making things accessible. Well, people with disabilities never come here. And I'm like, well, there's because <laughs> there's six steps to get into your, you know. So it, sure. so we would work, you know, with a state park. We'd go into the park and do an assessment and say, you know, we're going to come here and we're going to run a cycling event on your bike trails, but your the pathway to your bathroom is really rough. And can we look at a different pathway to to set that up? Can we, you know, if, water ski sites so we'd have waterfronts. You know, talking to them about here's here's a way if we reserve this table, this is the closest and it has actually a solid surface for them to get to water, as opposed to over there the rocks and the you know. So we'd start helping them and then sh helping them become more accessible and starting to think with universal design. And then also showing our clients that you can advocate for yourself in this setting and you can come back to this setting. You just used the phrase universal design. Is that, yes. a, is that a term that's used within the disability 
it is a term, it's, it's sort of the, I would say it's the disability side of the whole larger concept of sustainability and building positive environments and communities. And so universal design is the concept of building something so that it works for everyone. You know, and the perfect example I use for that is when you look at a mall, you go into a mall and there's the ramp and there's the steps. Well, who uses the ramp? Well, it's the UPS guy, it's the moms with strollers, and oh yeah, it's, it's people in wheelchairs. You know, so that's a perfect example of universal design. Shoveling the ramp first in a snowstorm. You know, well, there's so many more people that use the steps, but can they use the ramp? Oh yeah, yeah, they can use the ramp. So a person with a disability can use the ramp, so can the non-disabled person shovel the ramp first if you've only got so much time. That's thinking, that's a universal design kind of concept, is just thinking in ways that work for everyone, as opposed to thinking, well, the masses will use this, so we can't, we can't do something special just for people with disabilities. Well, it's not really special. Let's because everybody can. because everybody can use it. Right. So that's the concept of universal design. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. So you had at this point you had one employee. Yes. <laughs> lots of volunteers. Lots of volunteers. Lots of friends and family. Yes, lots of friends how and family. How many clients did you have at that point? Let's see. Um, roughly. Roughly, in we started hitting a hundred clients. So my first year we had twenty three. Last year we had over 3,000. Wow. In the early 90s, in the first few years of the grant, we were topping 100 and, and growing every year. So it was, it was steady progress. In the 97, 96, 97, I added another employee. 90, 98, 99, I added two more. 2000, I added two more. So it was, you know, I look at the, the grant years as water on the plant. You know, it was a seed of an idea. It had some great momentum, but it needed that grant funding to give us, those grants were three years each. And first year, 100% funding, second year, uh, 75, third year, 50. And then you had to sustain, but it gave us the opportunity to say, look, the federal government believed in us. The University of New Hampshire believes in us. Come on and help me make this match. And then we were able to get another one to start another aspect of the program. And we got three of those. And so that was nine years of, of funding that gave me leverage to go out and find more money by saying, I need you for this federal match. And, and then we were able to start to diversify our revenue streams and think more broadly about sustainability after grants, after those federal grants. Okay. Because as the political climate changed, so did those grants. <laughs> so, but they did what they needed to do for us. They, create, they brought us from serving 23 people a year to probably by 2000, we were over 1,000 people in a year. And that was... That's huge growth. That's, that's huge amazing. growth. Yeah. yeah. And, um, so sustainability post-grant, what do you mean by that? So once, the, the, once we had outlived sort of the mission of those grants, which was startup, as well as those grants had decreased and, and really started to go away. How are we going to look at the development of Northeast Passage as a sustainable entity? And it, and it was scary because we were, we were heavily grant, you know, we were 50 to 80% grant funded. And, and we could, I could see that coming, that endpoint coming in about 2004. So in 2000, that's when we started with, we started talking about the merge with the university. 
and planning, really giving ourselves a three to four year head start in planning about how we were gonna make this a sustainable entity. How are we gonna diversify revenue streams? What other grants were available, but knowing that federal funding was going to decrease, how could we increase our donor presence? How could we increase fees for service? What else was out there as a mechanism to, to start to fund this organization? Okay, so you were charging people to participate well, at some point. We, we started charging, we charged very small fees because, okay. and with the rec sports, I wanted to stay with a small fee, but we did determine that we were going to charge a fee. One from, here's, that's the reality. If, if, you are, if we are going to help people develop skills to be independently accessing recreation in the community, they have to understand that everybody in the world plays, pays for that. And if you, you want true equality, it, it goes both ways. You know, so, so we always wanted to charge some fee, but we didn't want it to be a prohibitive fee because the reality is that you know 29% of people with disability live at the poverty level, 40% are underemployed. You know, I mean, so recognizing that money is a, is a barrier, we wanted to, to find that balance point to charge a fee which also increases accountability, by the way. When it's, when it's a free service, no-shows are, are rampant. When, it's, when there's a fee, people show up. And so you know, there's that whole value system that's, that's in there. If it's free, bah, you know. Right. Um, but if I paid for it, then there's value. Interesting. So there's that whole sort of, I don't know, all of those mechanisms working together. So, but we did want to pay, but we understood that recreation, the, the rec sports side of our program, was never going to be funded by fee-for-service because of the demographics of the group that we were serving. It, it you know, it's a, I always say it's a terrible business model. Right now, our adapted sports cost us about $180 per person to run, and we get between 20 and 50. So, so that's the deficit on our adapted sports programs that we're trying to make up for every person that we work with. And so you cross-subsidized the adaptive sports with the therapy? Is that what you're we saying? We cross-subsidized the adapted sports with donations, grants, okay. fundraising events, okay. those streams. The recreation therapy side, we were developing as a different model. Okay. So to, to sort of move into... The, sure. Okay. Let's talk about that. So moving into the rec therapy side, we, it, in about 96 ish, we started seeing our clients coming to our rec sports programs that were less prepared than they had been initially. And so what's going on? Why are these guys not able to do the transfer from the ground to their chair? Pretty much most of them that are new injuries. And we started seeing that with rehab, the length of stay was going down. And so they were literally coming out with the basic skills as opposed to more advanced functional skills. So. All along, we had been trying to help people put those skills back together, but it started to look like we really needed something more comprehensive to do that. So we started, so we developed our PATH model, which was one of our federal grants. Okay. And what that, in the early days, we worked primarily with physical disability. And so we were on spinal cord injury. And so we wrote a grant, we received funding from New Hampshire Healthcare in Transition, and the Unum Foundation to develop a research project and do a pilot project on spinal cord injury transition. So we would catch people immediately after coming out of rehab and follow them for a year after discharge. 
putting together all of those pieces, making sure that you know what's preventing you from getting out there and really digging in with assessment and goal setting and sort of being the fork in the side and making sure they weren't developing bad habits. Again, using recreation as the context for that. With our pilot study and the research design, we were able to get a national disability, national NIDA grant, National Institute of Disability and Rehabilitation Research on developing this model and doing the research to determine if we actually were decreasing secondary conditions and improving outcomes for for people transitioning with spinal cord injury. Okay. The results of that were good. We were able to then move forward and get a contract with Martins Point Healthcare uh, to work with current military families and retired military. With the success of that and the research, we were able to get a contract with the Manchester VA to provide services to veterans with physical disabilities. So all along, once we started developing the rec therapy side, we were looking at what is a third-party reimbursement system that we can get paid to really do an intensive intervention with these people, with the clients that we're working with in community settings. Okay. And so that's kind of how the rec therapy side started. Okay. Uh, the true rec therapy side. It was always rec therapy, but where we really got into sort of an API process, which is assessment planning, intervention, and evaluation. That process really started when we started the PATH program. And, and then and at the same time, we started schools, but... PATH stood for Promoting Access, Transition, and Health. Yeah, it's funny. Every time we get a grant, you know, we have to have a good acronym to go okay. with it. So, um, <laughs> Is that the secret to getting a grant? I think so. Okay. That was, I'll uh, keep that in mind when yeah, I... Yeah, yeah, there you one. go. So it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's our secret. Okay. So... <laughs> okay. So let me, let me back up a little bit. You were trained as a therapist. Right. You had experience as an athlete. You were, right. had experience as a therapist, but you hadn't been a manager. No. And then you said, I'm going to start an organization. Right. And I'm going to have money and <laughs> right. employees and insurance and all this. How did you learn all that stuff? Oh, all that stuff is such a distraction from what you actually want to do. Okay. But <laughs> Somebody's <laughs> got to do it. Yeah, exactly. But the reality is, you know, and I was young, you know, I was late 20s and you know, all big eyes and save the world kind of thing. And then the reality of it, it was, it was a very intensive learning curve to understand nonprofit law, liability. I mean, I had a class on, you know, recreation and law, and I was like, oh my gosh, that stuff is so completely relevant and had to go back and dig out those textbooks. And, you know, I went and met with SCORP, uh, the, uh, what is it, Service Corps of Retired People, okay. you know, so sure. like retired accountants that would sit down with people right. like the me. people and, that help small businesses right, get started. Exactly. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so okay. I set up meetings with them and I'm like, help me. I have no idea. You know, and I looked for mechanisms to develop a nonprofit with an umbrella organization. And that's how we became a chapter of Disabled Sports USA because I could get liability insurance, a, po a group policy through them as well as a blanket nonprofit status as we were working on our own nonprofit status. So, so did you spin out eventually as your own so organization? We were in the process of doing that when the merger with, with UNH. With the UNH. Okay. So it was it was one of those two directions. Okay. And so yeah, you know, it was just looking for every resource I could find on oh Quarterly payroll taxes. What are those? <laughs> okay. Probably uh, so should pay them. Probably should pay those. They they <laughs> tend to get cranky. The IRS if yeah. you don't don't do that stuff. And 
liability insurance and what do my you know mins and maximums have to be on that and where is the threshold if I'm going to rent you know what do most people require of me if I'm going to rent a facility and so what is what are the conflict of interest policies for a, a nonprofit board in New Hampshire and New Hampshire has strict conflict of interest policies one of the most strict in the country so quickly trying to understand how like I, I got a template for bylaws from Disabled Sports USA. Well, how does that fit with New Hampshire law and, and structure? So all of a sudden, all of this stuff that was not even on my radar when I was like, hey, let's, let's do this, you know? <laughs> and so became a crash course in how to run a nonprofit organization. Okay. Um, so any resource that was out there that would, was willing to sit down with me was someone that I would go and sit down with so okay so a learning process over the years huge learning curve when you came to merge with UNH how much of that was kind of lifted off you how much are you still having to do with that it it lifted UNH help some right yes it it lifted a lot it it was a tough decision though because you know we were the small nimble nonprofit you know someone sent me a bill I wrote a check you know and then with UNH they're like six layers of check approval, you know, and, and audits and which are good, you know, um, but you were no longer autonomous, right? But it's been, it's at first, I think the bureaucracy of UNH, I mean, my board finally decided that this was the right direction to go because all of those things that we were just talking about were a distraction to my area of expertise and what we wanted to do in the world. UNH gave us a platform to operate from. It gave us accountants and lawyers and insurance and and resources in terms of student volunteers, resources in terms of faculty expertise, and a home. You know, it gave us space. So it was a it was a tough decision. I, my favorite quote from our board members when we when we did the vote to resolve Northeast Passage as an independent nonprofit organization and merge with the university was, he goes, well, Jill, I guess your baby's going to college. (laughs) I was like, that's perfect. You know, and, and, you know, I look back and it really, this has been my baby. And, you know, now we're a young adult and, um, and we're actually, you know, I mean, it, it went through infancy and adolescence and going to college and, you know, and so it really can, you know, take a, a human development class, and I can match up the, <laughs> I can match that up to Northeast Passage. Yeah. But. Okay. So you use the phrase strengths-based a lot in your literature. Um, right. It, what does that mean? I think strength-based is a, it's a way at looking at your your client or your patient from their strength versus their weakness, and I think that's one of the transitions that's happening in healthcare now. You know, we, if you look at somebody in a medical model, you're looking at what's wrong, what don't I have, what don't they have, what do we need to supplement, what, what symptom do we need to treat? And when you're looking at a strengths-based model, you're looking at what do they have, what are the things that we can build on, how do we keep them strong, keep them healthy, keeping them moving forward and living with this diagnosis as opposed to focusing on curing that diagnosis. Because in some cases, that's not going to be possible. And so how can we teach people to live well 
with an illness or an injury, you know, or a disability. And what strengths, it's, it's essentially that. It's looking at what strengths do they have and how can we maximize those strengths for healthy living into the future. Okay. On your website, you, you refer, and you've talked about this a little bit as we've been talking, you refer to community and home-based, and, and you were starting to talk about school-based uh, right. recreation therapy. Why, why is it important to have this, these therapies in the community, in the home? Uh, why not just do it in a clinical setting? Right. I think that the, the beauty of recreation therapy is that our tool, our modality, is a recreation experience. And within that recreation experience, you can tap into every single domain that is that a person has, physical, emotional, intellectual, social, within the context of that recreation. In a rehab setting, you are in this, you're in a structured environment, a controlled environment. And you can practice things there, but it's not a real world experience. If we can take that learning opportunity using the context of recreation in an uncontrolled setting, it's like we have the opportunity to do real world, real time problem solving with a person who has a disability or is living with you know, a, a chronic illness. And that has so much more impact in my mind. I think where our profession needs to be pushing is in a community setting and establishing our footholds in community settings because we've got this amazing context for teaching and the community is the perfect backdrop for that. And helping someone to truly live beyond their disability, they have to live in that community. And so if we can do our work in that community where they're living, they're not having to transition those skills from a structured environment to a community environment. They're learning those skills where they're going to have to practice them. And so that's, that's why I okay. firmly believe that we need to be in the community. And that's also why you're looking at the school-based right. therapies as well. Exactly. And, you know, we're doing a lot of work with autism in, in school systems. And, again, recreation is such the perfect context for, you know, in, with younger kids, we're, learn, we're looking at helping kids with autism understand the, like the social constructs of a, of a playground or a school system where these things just aren't, you know, this doesn't make sense to me, you know. Is, and so how do I go... And, you know, I'm on the playground. We'll treat in real settings. So we'll go to the playground with them and be like, and talk about who do you want to invite to play a game? And what are the things that you need to know to be able to invite someone to play that game? And how to, what are the rules of the game? And what if the game doesn't go your way? And how do we manage that behavior? And do you understand why you got the reaction from the, the other student when you, when you were unhappy about how, how that game came out? And yeah. all of those things. And so we'll use those with like elementary school students all the way up to students that are transitioning out of high school. So we'll start to look at what, how can I learn in a social setting the skills that I'm going to need to be successful in an interview process. So often kids with autism on the autism spectrum have the intellect to be rock stars in employment, but they don't have the social skills to either get the job or manage the, that work environment, or a, a college environment. They have the academic skills to be successful. They don't have the, the social skills to be successful. So what, what we do is use recreation as a teaching context, again, for even if it doesn't come naturally for you to react to this social setting in this way, this is the way it, you will be successful if, you react, if, you, if you're able to navigate this social setting in this way. 
So we'll work on, on those things. We'll work on like, you know, we'll do an amazing race using public transportation. You know, uh, okay. so your amazing race is to find the bus that goes to the mall. When you get to the mall, you have $5. The person that comes in closest to spending $5, under $5 with three items wins that leg of the race, you know. And so we're able to use all of the things. Now what we've taught is money management. And you have to be back at school by 2 o'clock. So you're, you're teaching time management, you're teaching public transportation, you're teaching money management, you're teaching safe strangers, you're teaching all of these things that are going to work for them once they transition out of, of the protection of high school into the, into the real world. Is this done in a group setting or an individual setting? Both. We can do both. Um, so I think that our therapists in the schools like groups better because that provides that natural feedback from peers. It's, I think that playing off the group dynamics is, is a great way to learn. Uh, you know, when, one of the things that we had a, a middle school group and they were doing, they did a project runway, uh, a project runway uh, sort of series. <clears throat> so what they were doing is they were learning how to give and take constructive criticism. They were learning money management. They went to <clears throat> Goodwill and bought fabric. They were learning sewing skills and art skills to be able to design some sort of, of garment for their runway. You know, okay. And so okay. those are the type of okay. things that we're doing. Neat. So in 2014, Northeast Passage received a VA adaptive sports grant that extended the PATH program to veterans and members of the armed forces who experience mental health disorders as the primary reason Right. for the referral to the program. Right. Uh, how did, what is it you're doing? How does rec therapy help with this, the kind of disabilities that are your, or, or injuries that you're being uh, referred now? That we're seeing a lot of, yes. The, the, when the VA created that opportunity for the Adapted Sports Grants, we were, we were really excited. And what it did, our contract with the Manchester VA was providing just to veterans with physical disabilities. This opened up the opportunity for us to provide service to veterans of any era with any disability. And so, you know, the most predominant disability that is coming out of post 9-11 and really that is still impacting a great number of Vietnam era veterans is post-traumatic stress, depression, substance abuse, social isolation, mild brain injury. Those are the things that are, are going to be the disability of this of this war, and really, when we go back and look, were the disability of Vietnam era veterans. So, what we do with, say, post traumatic stress or depression, once again, we go back to that assessment of what do you want your life to look like? What, what is it right now, and what's preventing you from being able to create that life that you want to create? What are the barriers that are, that are preventing that? Is it, you know, I, I if it's a substance abuse issue, is it that, you know, when we'll start looking at when, when are you drinking? Is it to stop thinking about something? Is it because that's the friend group that I'm in? Is it that I have pain? You know, all of those things. And then what we'll start to do is say, okay, well, what can we do? Or it's, what is it when I get stressed out? What can we do to replace that drinking behavior with something that is a positive, healthy behavior? So, is it finding a group of people that 
do not rely on substance that have a common interest that you can look as an island to leap to, you know, so now we're going to go mountain biking. And when I'm mountain biking, I can't think about all the the bad things that are going to happen because I will end up on the ground very quickly. You know, bad things will happen. Right, bad things will happen. Yeah, exactly. So it, it is a great way to clear your mind and focus on what's happening. But we're also bringing in others that have a similar interest. So you're creating a peer group for them that is based on a healthy activity as opposed to the peer group that goes out and sits and drinks. With post-traumatic stress, it's often uncomfortable. You know, there. This is one way that it manifests itself is being uncomfortable in crowd settings or in isolated settings or sudden loud noises, a lot of things along that line. So we'll use something, one example that I have is, is baseball games. You know, we had a guy that was completely loved baseball but was not going to go to a baseball park. So we started with small baseball games and very predictable, no stands, open space, cars right there, and started just sort of chronicling like, what are the noises, what are the things that you can anticipate that are going to happen here, even though they're unpredictable in terms of loud noises, people cheering, people bumping you. And then we work our way all the way up to a Red Sox game where, okay, we're gonna go, where are we gonna be parked? Where are we gonna be seated? What would be the best seating situation for you? What could possibly, what are the, the noises and things that, that are typical triggers for you what we can we anticipate of that happening and how can we mitigate that? When do we need to leave? Do we need to leave before the crowd is leaving? Do we need to, to sit and wait until after the crowd is gone? Um, what's my closest exit? You know, there might be fireworks. There might be, you know. So just looking at all of those things and working our way up to being able to tolerate those by developing strategies that solve those problems. So it, it's a... It's an example that we, we've used and, and gives sort of an overview, but every one of those situations is so unique that it's really developing, working with that person to develop um, the best method of, of overcoming those barriers. It might be woodworking. It might be, you know... But uh, it's all based on the individual, their interests, all based on the, their strengths. Right. So you have to find what is that, what is that thing that makes them tick? What is the thing that is going to get them to invest themselves in improving their quality of life? Okay. So it's, and if once you find that, now you've got some, you've got a place to work from with that person. So you've got a VA grant yes. to do that. Mm -hmm. Long term, what would your relationship be beyond the grant? So that you're, you're issuing right. sustainability and kind yeah. of ongoing. Are you going to be able to bill at some point, do you we're, think? Or? We're, we're billing right now with the Manchester VA. And we had, we were able to get a contract. The VA is now moving to Veterans Choice, which is, so there will be no more direct external contracts. So what we're working on now is at a national level, trying to get recreation therapy listed as a therapy, as a therapy, available therapeutic enter, uh, intervention through Veterans Choice. The VA is, is on board, but they're using CMS, Centers for Medicare Medicaid law as sort of the base template. We're not in So there's no CMS. CPT code for right. recreational there, therapy session? Well, CPT or, codes aren't specific to, to diagnosis, so there are CPT codes that we can actually, okay. I mean, aren't specific to the person that's doing it, the therapist. So we can use, there are certain CPT codes that we can use, but there's no, like, 
honestly, there's no drop down box for therapeutic recreation. Okay. And so the big national push is, do we need to have a waiver? Do we need to get CMS to recognize it in an outpatient setting? CMS is, it, it recognizes recreation therapy in certain settings, but not outpatient. So we're not a part of that menu. So while the VA wants rec therapy, the sort of the forms that they're using, well, they tell us that they want recreation therapy. And uh, so that's, that's where we're really having to go back and work on systems change to make sure that recreation therapy is a part of these systems so that it is service is available to our clients. Okay. So it's and so if, if it's not in the CMS system, that means you probably would have difficulty billing Medicare as well correct. for this kind of with outpatient. Yes, with outpatient. Yes. Okay. And but, so, but elderly could you know people who've had a stroke or absolutely could absolutely use this kind of service as well. And that sort of brings us into where, for the first time, healthcare is really coming to us. You know, the inpatient stays are shrinking. People are looking at successful transitions. You're not as much tied to like a fee basis, like treating a symptom, come, we'll treat the symptom, we'll do this test, we'll charge for that, you're, on, you're out and you're on your own. The incentives are shifting to how long did they stay healthy after those interventions. That's, that's where we live, you know, and that's where we need to continue to be doing the research, but where we already have research that shows that we can have an impact on improving those outcomes. So with healthcare moving in that direction, we have a real place and a real foothold. It's on our profession to be able to articulate that to the powers that be to help them understand the role that we can play in this whole new design of healthcare. So, so it, we, I just had an interview with the chief medical officer at Harvard Pilgrim, and he hmm. talked quite a bit about value-based and bundled payments and, and exactly. that kind of movement. Yes. So you see yourself yes being able to get into that without having to get through the the nut roll of, of fee-for-service and getting exactly. particular code set up exactly you think so so the organizations that are moving in that direction are looking at organizations like you as this is another modality that could potentially help exactly meet that need that's exactly right okay. so when you're looking at accountable care organization and they're looking at a population that they have to care for top to bottom really expensive people and really inexpensive people we can be a tool in that toolbox to be able to help with the really expensive people to help them become happier, healthier, more independent, in some cases more employable, that will help manage the costs of this entire population. So that's where we fit there. All right. So that's kind of, the, you fit very nicely into the future of, of, of healthcare. Policy. We do. It, and, and for the first time, I always felt like we were an outlier in, in fee-based healthcare. And you know, even I've had conversations with, you know, insurance companies such as as Harvard Pilgrim or, you know, other providers, and it wasn't, it didn't make sense for them as a, in a business model to, to adopt what we were doing because often their clients would, you know, once they, if they had a catastrophic injury that wasn't work-related, they would go through, be discharged from rehab, and if they didn't return to work, they would be dropped into Medicare Medicaid. So our intervention really wasn't, going to impact their bottom line in a, in, a, in a great way. Now, with the changes in healthcare, we're carrying those people through longer, and, um, and we can impact that. That's fascinating. How did your role as the executive director change once you merged with UNH? So it kind of gave me a sense of some autonomy, maybe right. lost, but 
I think you know UNH has been amazing in that they have left us, they have let us be very autonomous. They they watch us very carefully, but they understand that we're on the cutting edge of what's happening in our field and tying to healthcare reform, and they're really they give us a lot of room. I think that what changed for me is I as an executive director, as a private nonprofit, I was looking very much internally at um, at Northeast Passage client outcomes, uh, you know, day-to-day -day operation. As part of UNH, I had to look at this from a bigger picture. I had to start to look at how do we fit within the mission of the university? Why would the UNH want us to be here? You know, and, and we fit really well within a land-grant institution, you know, service education research. We hit very hard on all of those things. So, so making sure that we are a good partner to UNH, looking at how can we have an exponential impact on the field of therapeutic recreation by preparing students and really looking at getting our philosophies, helping them truly understand our philosophies and being able to advocate that as they become professionals. And then looking at where we fit in healthcare. You know, so my role has really sort of shifted from looking at Northeast Passage and, and managing the day-to-day -day business to managing the big picture of how can we be a national player. So, I mean, you're, what you're talking about is kind of strategy. Uh, right. so, so how do you go about developing your strategy as, a, as you know, you're, you're talking about, you're, you're, you're taking into consideration the interests of UNH, but what right. else, who else, what else are you thinking about kind of in the big picture of, right. as you look five years into the future, right. where's Northeast Passage going to be? How, how do you think through that process? We always joke about the, the downstairs in, in the therapy office, it's our, our, uh, our theory of world domination. So, you know, <laughs> awesome. it's, uh, you know, we want to change the way therapeutic recreation is viewed and offered and and we want to become a player in, in healthcare reform. That's our goal. That's where we want to go. Strategy comes from, I have always felt that if we are very in tune with our client base and the questions that are being asked by our clients and people with disabilities, that's going to steer you in the direction that you need to look a little deeper at what's happening in that, that world. For Like with when we developed PATH, it was, we developed it because we saw the impact of shortened length of stay on people getting out into the community and not being as prepared. So we watch very carefully what's happening with people with disabilities in our local environment. And then when we start to see trends with that, then we look at what's happening in the world and why is that happening. It's a little Freakonomics kind of, yeah, you know. Yeah, but we start to do that and then we say, is this something that we can have within our scope of practice? Can we have an impact on that? And if we can have an impact on that, how, are, how would we move forward in that way? So that's really how we develop our strategy. It's, it starts very glass, grassroots. Then we start to look at what's happening in the world that's causing this. And then is this a problem that we can impact, have, have an impact on or not? And I think that's also the challenge is understanding where, where do we, are we a piece of this or are we the answer to this or are we not involved in this? And we need to be just steering people in another, we can't help you with this, but go look over here. Okay. So. Okay. Uh, how has your strategy changed over time? How has it changed since you founded the organization? Do you have a, do you have a very different vision of what 
Northeast Passage should be from back in the early days? You know, I think the thing that's been really cool is, is I go back and I look at some of our, like my early, like writings and, and everything and our mission statement, we're on track. It's just, we're becoming more evolved and we're able to impact things on a larger scale. It's, we just trademarked the living beyond disability and that's what we're trying to do. We're, we don't want people to just survive beyond a disability or a chronic illness. We want them to truly thrive beyond that. How, using recreation, I mean, if you start to look at, it, it really boils down to if people are happier, they're healthier, they're more employable, they get better faster from the same thing as someone who's not happy, recreation is the perfect tool to be able to do that. And how do we, how can we manipulate our, our modality for the greatest positive good. And I think that that's one of the things that I'm, I feel really good about the fact that even at that early stage, we had this vision and we've just been building on that vision from, from day one. It, it looks very different. It's much more sophisticated now, but the vision of at the end of the day, what we want to accomplish is, is the same. And just how can we do that? for more people, for a, a more diverse group of disabilities, and in, in, you know, nationally. What can we do to help people start to, to apply these principles nationally? Can you briefly describe your organization as it currently sits? Like, what, what do I, have you, you're the executive director, yeah. what, how does the rest of the organization so, look, and how um, big is it? So, there's 18 staff okay. uh, right now, and we ha I have myself an associate director, and then I have directors of Adapted Recreation, Competitive Sport, under our Adapted Sports. And then under Rec Therapy, I have a Director of Schools and a Director of PATH, which currently is Veteran Services. Okay. And then I also have an Administrative Team. Okay. Um, so I have 11 therapists, and then I have an event planner, uh, organizer kind of person, um, and coaches. Okay. So that's... Do you have a Do you have a lot of volunteers still? We we have fewer volunteers now, even though we're bigger, because our tie to the university. So, within the academic year, we we're working with almost three hundred students a year, and so what used to be volunteer roles are now being filled by students, either on internship, in nice. practicum, in student projects, in service learning, and so, so it's unpaid labor. But it's unpaid labor, but. The, the thing that was nice about volunteers is they invested long-term and they, their skills grew with their investment. With students, they're brand spanking they're new churned. every year, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so we're constantly in a, a process of teaching and training and, and, and that's good. That's something we brought up as part of our service to the university. That's exactly why we're here. Right. But it changes the dynamic. We're not a typical volunteer management organization. Right. because of the number of students that we're creating, we're a living lab for. Okay. So let's, if you don't mind, let's switch gears a little bit and talk, talk a little bit about leadership. Okay. So you're the executive director of the organization, not just a therapist. Right. You've grown an organization from an idea into what it is today. How has your leadership style changed over the years as a result of the experiences you've had and to accommodate the additional scope? I think that... I was so protective of the model and the way that I wanted things to happen early on that I was, I was 
pretty tightly involved in every aspect of, of what was happening. And this is the way I want it done. And, you know, just being a little rigid in, in how I was, I was doing it because I was protective of the model. Then it, it sort of evolved in, as, as I evolved and got a little more help, you know, got a, I started looking, is it different or wrong? And so as people started to bring in differing theories on how to do things, I would just sit there and ask myself, different or wrong, different or wrong? And often the answer was different and good. And, and started to really appreciate how different perspectives could still build on a model. And so, you know, the growth in my leadership has really been, you know, understanding, it's kind of a good to great kind of model. It's, it's get the right people on the bus. And if they're talented people that understand the vision, buy into the vision, they're huge contributors to the success of that vision. And making sure that I am giving extremely talented people the opportunity to create, giving them a tremendous amount of freedom and autonomy, but a tremendous amount of responsibility. And it is remarkable to me how much people with that sort of environment and making sure that they are completely aware of the fact that I care about them first and foremost, um, how, how much they have bought into this whole, it's not mine anymore, it's ours, you know, and they're buying into it and they want to make a, a difference. And, you know, my, my events and sort of director of organization will, you know, when, when people are leaving the office, she just yells out, go change life. You know, and, and that's kind of the, it, it's a joke, but it's happening and we take that very seriously. You know, we take very seriously the fact that people are trusting us with what the next phase of their life is gonna look like. And, you know, my, the, we talked about the, the sort of the, the world domination. It's that, you know, both my PATH and TREK models, which are the schools and the veterans models, these have a real place in the future of healthcare. And the directors of those programs have grabbed onto that and is, has become absolutely their passion. So having, it, it's like I have learned to trust people with my dream and making sure that I have the right people in place to, to go out and, and, and make this bigger than anything I ever could have imagined it could be. How do you know when you have the right people? How do you find the right people? It's really, you know, it's as much you can you can see their talent and you know from resumes and referrals and you know uh, just sort of getting an essence of who they are i love it when people come and volunteer for us to see how, first to see how they interact with us but then I, I i think a lot of it is is sort of a gut feeling about you know in their answers to interview questions are they articulating a passion for this field is it, do they want this job and can they do this job? And, and are they going to make this job better than it was when they came into the job? And it's, it's listening to them and understand, and, and you have to be able to feel that sense of passion. If someone comes in and is like, the definition of therapeutic recreation is to rehabilitate, remediate, and, you know, I'm, I'm like, that's, you know, no, I want to know what you feel about this profession. I want to know what you see as its potential and, and really watching for that spark. I think that's how, how you know. How would you describe your leadership philosophy? 
I think that it is really the, the concept of, of trusting the people that you have and giving them room to be contributors to the organization. But also at the same time, someone just said this to me the other day and I, I thought it was great. I, it was, I'm a leader, but sometimes I have to be the boss, you know? And, sure. and I consider all of them leaders, but we, do op we have to operate within this vision of, of where we're going and the mission of what it is that we're doing. And if we get off track or if we're doing something that's counter to the productivity of the whole team, you have to come back and we have to, I have to pull you back on that. But if you are moving along and, and doing great things, I'm your cheerleader and, and I will do what I can do to help you be successful. What, what are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader and how do you aspire to those yourself? I think it, for me, you know, a, a strong leader is someone that has a strong vision. It's the ability to find talented people that buy into that vision. It's to give people a lot of responsibility, a lot of flexibility, but also being willing to hold people accountable. I think it's the ability to create a supportive team so that the team can build on each other and feed on each other because the group brain is so much stronger than the individual brain. And I think it's always saying thank you. You know, I mean, it's as, as simple as that, letting your people know that they're appreciated. Can you give an example of a leader you worked with, who you have tried to emulate? You know what, that, I, I couldn't come up with that. Okay. It, it's okay. like, I, I take pieces, you know, and I take things that I know that I didn't like yeah. in, in, in other work settings. And I think the biggest thing is when I was working in rehab, you were so confined to what needed to happen in every day. Um, you, have, you have to be accountable for every 15 minutes. You're accountable to the bottom line. You are, you have to be here within these hours. And that to me was so stifling to the creativity that, that could happen if you gave people some flexibility and you understood their, you know, I have a, a, a sick child or I, you know, wow, I'm just spent today, you know, well, don't come, you know, but tomorrow I, I know that because I gave you that, you're going to give me 120% tomorrow. You know, and so it's really just sort of been paying attention to pieces of what leaders do and, and trying to build them into, into my own philosophy. Right. Can you give an example of a difficult leadership lesson that maybe you had to learn the hard way? Yeah, I think that we hit on that a little bit earlier. The, you can find really talented people that sometimes just don't fit. Okay. And so, and as hard as you try to make them fit into the culture of your organization and buy into the vision, and you thought all of the pieces were there, and they're not. And even though they're a talented contributor, they are in some way, because they're not buying into that vision or that philosophy or that culture, they're actually pulling the team down. And how do you help that person move on into another career or job without, because they're talented, you know, it's not that they were, they're bad at their job. It's just that they, they're not a good fit. Okay. And that's a, that's a tough thing to do. Sure. Can you give me an example of a leadership challenge that you're particularly proud of having that? I mean, your whole, your I, whole organization is pretty, pretty You know, amazing. that's what I was going to say. I think that when I look at Northeast Passage, the fact that we've been able to evolve as an organization, as we learn, we haven't ever lost sort of the spark for excitement about what we're doing 
because we're like, wow, that worked. Where else could that go? And so it's, I think that I, I have to say that the leadership challenge has been the different thing that Northeast Passage throws at me every day or every year. And can we make it bigger and better? And not necessarily bigger, but better and more impactful. And, you know, figuring out what is that balance. And I would say that every year there's been a different leadership question that I've had to respond to with this organization. And it's been, that's been fun. That's what keeps it exciting. That's neat. What, what is organizational culture and why is it important? And specifically, what aspects of organizational culture are particularly important to you? You know, we have some really simple rules. Organizational culture is, is, the, is so important because it's where you live a huge percentage of your life. And you have to fit with the culture of the organization. What, we have some really basic rules. For, it's, it's don't make someone else's job harder. Trust that your coworker is absolutely doing the right thing because we've hired a talented person for that job and we know they can do the job, trust that even if they're out weird hours and doing, you know, and you're not seeing them, trust that they're absolutely doing the right thing because that gives you a sense of support in your work. As an individual, that's a tremendous responsibility because you have to absolutely be doing the right thing. And if you break that trust, the whole culture kind of crumbles a little bit. So it's helping, it's making sure that all of the people that are that are on board understand their responsibility in how we create this supportive environment. I want them to know that we, they're cared about. I want them to be happy to come to work. We, we allow for a loose structure because it is, it works. It, it gets them, it, it gets the creative juices of the team flowing when we have, when we have a looser structure. We're finding that as we grow, we have to develop systems that aren't as loose or else we lose track of people. But, so we're, we're designing the technological systems to create the structure for us so that we can maintain the culture at a human level. And that's, uh, that's, been, that's been one, that's a leadership challenge that we're going through right now. With, we've grown so much in the last three years. We've added seven people. And how do we maintain the culture, the human culture that we've created that's been so productive from a creativity standpoint, without losing track of who's got the vehicles, where are you now, I need this resource, did you return that phone call? So technology is, is coming into place, I mean, to give us that structure so that we can maintain our human culture. I mean, we have mandatory fun days. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So did you have a mentor or mentors earlier in your career? You mentioned someone. Yeah, I really I, did. I, I, I would say that Janet Sable was my mentor. And okay. she's, uh, she's retiring this year. And it's going to be a very different world for me not having Janet around. She was on my first board of directors. Without Janet, Janet was the person that wrote grants. Okay. Got helped me get our first federal. She was she's a master at writing federal grants, and we would not. I don't think that we would have made the transition to a sustainable organization without her influence. Her teaching me grants. I think it would have been a, a good idea in the trunk of my car for a long time. That was helping twenty three people and limping along. She showed me the importance of. Wow, you have a really good idea. Let's get this on a bigger stage so that people can learn from what we're doing. She made me present at national conferences. She helped us write and publish articles. She, you know, it, she made me get a master's degree. And I mean, 
made me get a master's degree, <laughs> you know, which I need. I, I need that from a, the knowledge base, the credibility, the, you know, I'm at a, at a university institution. So it's, it's going to be very different, even though we've, we don't need each other day to day as much as we used to. It, it's been a real security blanket to be able to walk into her office, shut the door, and and just talk it out. And uh, I'll miss that. So, what do good mentors do? I think that good mentors take a look at what you're doing well and talk and and, and praise you for that but are also, they're looking at it from the outside and they can see your holes as well, the places that you need improvement. And they, they help you come to realize that that is a hole as well, as opposed to saying, wow, you're really not doing very well in this part of, of it. It's like, hey, how can we, look, these are great things that you're doing over here, but how do we, how do we fill this void? And, and what are the skills that you need? How can we get you those skills to, to uh, to improve this part of it and make this part of the organization stronger. And I think it's also being willing to jump in and be like, wow, you don't have time to do that. I'm going to just do this piece. We're going to get it done and let's move on with the business at hand. And we've had other universities call us and ask us how, how to do what it is that we've done here at UNH. And we had someone actually come up on sabbatical and sit down and interview us for hours. And we were looking at each other like, wow, you know, to actually map it out for another university to replicate is almost impossible. And I think that is because of the, the mentorship and the partnership that we were able to develop and, and be willing to sort of go with it as it evolved, you know. So that was huge. What advice would you give to people who see a social need the way you did and want to meet it by creating an organization like Northeast Passage, not necessarily to do exactly what you right. do, no, but I, some other need perhaps. Right. Uh, what education and experience should they get before they jump in? Or should they just jump in? Well, you know, I guess the, the, the best advice I, I can give is to, if you're truly passionate about it, by all means, go and do it. The the thing to realize, however, is that it's going to be harder than you ever imagined it would be. Like people have said, can you come out and help us develop this somewhere else? I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I can't. It's, it is absolutely hard. It is 100% consuming. It is a decision that you make that means that you can't make other choices, make some other choices. It's 100% worth it. But I think it's just know what you're getting yourself into. And, you know, understand that, like, the mission, the thing that you want to do is, is only a part of what is involved in making an organization go. And so you end up not getting to do the fun stuff to make the organization go. You have to pay attention to the insurance and the board and the liability and the risk management and the policies and procedures. And that's not necessarily the fun stuff that originally got you into wanting to do this. And I think to be aware that that is, that is going to consume a bunch of your time. Sometimes I joke about it. I'm like, it's my little shop of horrors. You know, it's <laughs> feed me Seymour. You know, uh, it's, you know. I, the the non-therapy aspects right. of the It's, of the you know, it's like the, the, the bigger it gets, the more that, you know, yeah, I love growing a plant, but now the bigger the plant gets, the more it wants that, you know, it's, it's, it's little shop of horrors. And, and you just have to be aware that the side of 
the business and maintaining the business is going to take a tremendous amount of time away from what it is that that social concern that you really wanted to fix. So that's okay. So what advice do you have for people who might want to explore a career in recreational therapy? I think dive in. I think it's an exciting time for recreation therapy. I think that healthcare is coming to us. Uh, CNN Money, was it CNN Money? I think did a story two years ago and said that therapeutic recreation is, you know, of all professions, it's ranked number nine in its potential to save the world, you know? And it's for saving the world. It's, it's an opportunity to interact with people on a level that you don't get in the other therapeutic professions because you're on their turf. You know, you are, you're doing something that is familiar to them. If, if, you, if disability comes into your world and you're a family that has just given birth to a child with a disability and you're an outdoor family, we can work with that family on how you're going to continue to be an outdoor family even though now you have a child with a disability. We're in their world, making their world better. I think a lot of other therapies are, are building blocks and critically, critically important, but we get to take that next step with, with our clients and that's tremendously powerful. You're not gonna get paid often as much as you will in some of the other professions, so I guess it's really just weighing out, do you wanna to live to work or work to live, you know? And so if this strikes your interest, you know, dive in. It's a young enough profession, you can make a huge difference. Go for it. Thank you so much for talking with us today. This is really inspiring. You're welcome. Thank you for, uh, for your interest in us. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.